when I was a child, um, I had kind of this narrative that, that ran um, throughout my imagination and kind of in the back of my, my mind, in my psyche. Um, and, and it, I mean, we all do this. We, we all have these stories. If you were here for Christmas, we talked about it a little bit. We all have these stories or these narratives that we tell ourselves, that we run through our minds, and it helps us make sense of the world around us. Um, and, and so there's stories about, about all these different things, about all of our actions. It kind of underlies our philosophy. So, for instance, the, the kind of recurring story in my mind growing up um, was any, I mean, just pick one of the many different flavors of the underdog story, right? Um, so you can see it in all kinds of different movies. It's, it's a very popular story, right? Um, like a Rocky or a Rudy, right? Someone who, despite all the odds, uh, rises and achieves what they wanted to achieve. And so this was a way of, of kind of trying to find my place in that story of, of me being able to encounter the difficulties that the life threw my way. Um, now, the, the Jewish people had these kind of stories. They had these stories of the world around them. They had these stories about God. They had these stories about what they were expecting in the future. And, and they told these stories over and over and over and over again. And they kind of ran in the back of their imaginations. And again, it, it, it helped them make sense of the world around them. Um, one of their favorites, and, and I say one of their favorites because it was one of Jesus' favorites, and it's one that we'll see here in, in Acts as we pick it up, um, comes from a guy named Daniel. Daniel was this... Um, uh, kind of mighty man in, in Babylon um, when the Jews got sent off to Babylon and, and he kind of rose to the top because he could interpret visions, he could interpret dreams. And he had a few of his, his own. Um, and in Daniel 7, he has this vision and he tells this story and it, it became really popular among the Jewish people. Um, so much though, again, that they, they told it and retold it and retold it. And Jesus seems to adopt it as his own story, as his own way of making sense of the world around him. So, so I just want to tell you the story, okay? This is my kind of, if I was Daniel, here's how I would tell you the story. Um, I, I was sleeping one night, and I, I kind of had this dream, and, and it was this kind of big, vast, terrifying dream, so I woke up, and I wrote it all down, right? I got my diary, dear diary, tonight I dreamt about this, and, and when I was dreaming, here's what I saw. There was the sea, and it was kind of this dark, um, lonely night, and, and there was this sea, it was kind of calm, and, and the wind started to pick up, and the sea started to kind of swirl, um, and, and out of the sea, started to, you kind of saw these figures start to come out of the sea, and these four monsters came up out of the sea. These four terrifying, horrific monsters came up out of the sea. Um, now, to the Jewish people, this is an aside, um, the sea was this source of chaos, this symbol of evil and darkness. Um, think about, you know, humankind is very advanced. We've been able to manipulate and control lots of different things about the world we live in. But what happens when a tsunami comes or a hurricane comes? We run. There's no off switch for that, Right? We have no way of kind of controlling that. We run. And so just ask anybody who lives on the coast of somewhere where a hurricane's hit or a tsunami is hit, and they will tell you, yeah, the sea is kind of this frightening thing. The sea is this source of uncertainty and fear. At the end of our Bibles, in, in Revelation, um, there is no more sea. That's one of the promises. There will be no sea in eternity. And some of us go, oh, man, that stinks. I love the beach. I love walking <laughs> on the sand and surfing. But, but the idea there is, again, there's no kind of this chaos. There's no evil force out there that can take your life at any moment without you having a word in it. Okay, so the sea is kind of swirling up, and these four monsters come out of the sea. And, and I'm dreaming all this. The four monsters come up. The first monster rises first, and he looks like a lion. It's this, it's this big, snarling, scary lion. And the lion has wings on its back. It's, it's not like a lion I've ever seen before. It has wings on its back. And as I'm watching the lion kind of emerge from the sea... Both of its wings are plucked off. I mean, they're just kind of ripped out of its body. 
And then the lion is, is stood up on its hind legs, kind of like it was a man. It's stood up on its hind legs, and there's this weird kind of open brain surgery. And, and, and the mind of a man is put into the lion, and then he's set loose on creation. And I kind of shuddered. It was, it was kind of a dark, scary thing to see. And then the second beast, the second monster, rose up out of the sea, and it, it looked like a bear. It, it looked like this big, again, just overwhelming, scary bear. And it had three ribs in its teeth, like it had just finished eating something and still had the, the ribs in its teeth. And it kind of was distended, like something, it wasn't like a normal bear, it was kind of up on its side, like something was pulling it, like an invisible string. And as I watched the bear kind of come up out of the sea, I heard this voice, this big, dark, deep voice come out and say, eat, devour all the flesh that you want. And the bear was unleashed upon creation. And I shuddered again, because these two monsters were loose among us. And then this third monster, or four of them, this third one comes up out of the sea, and it looks like a leopard. So there was the lion, there was the bear, now there's a leopard, and the leopard had four wings on its back. Unlike a leopard I'd ever seen, right? This would make a great sci-fi movie. The, the leopard had four wings on its back, and it also had four heads. And I counted them, because, it, again, it was hard to picture, but there were four heads on the leopard, and it was in control. I sensed that this leopard was kind of the king. It had dominion. It had power over whatever it wanted to. And it was unleashed upon creation. And it was this real cold, dark night as these monsters rose from the sea and were unleashed. And then a fourth monster began to emerge. And it was, it was the biggest. I mean, you could just tell by the way the water was moving. This was the biggest and baddest monster. And it came out. And, and I can't even describe it like it looked like an animal. It came out. And, and all I remember about it was that these huge kind of iron metal teeth. And it just chomped whatever came its way. And shattered it into millions of pieces. And then when the pieces fell on the, the ground, it took these huge kind of claw, hoof feet. And it just stepped on them and shattered them and ground them into dust. And this beast had, what I do remember about its body is it, it had ten horns on its head. These ten horns, and, and as I was watching it kind of come out of the water, three of the horns fell out, and it was replaced by one little horn. Almost like, think of like a baby tooth falling out, and then an adult tooth coming in. And this one little horn had eyes on it. It looked like looking into the eyes of, of a, a guy or a girl, these, these blue, deep eyes. And the horn started talking, like these, these really smart, intellectual, convincing things. And it was unleashed upon creation. And I sat there and I, and I was watching them. I, I saw them emerge out of the sea and I just thought, this is not good. It's not good for anybody. We're all going to be crushed at the hands of these beasts. And before I could even get done with that thought, this throne, this huge, white, powerful throne kind of came out of nowhere and, and landed in the middle of the scene. And on the throne came the Ancient of Days, came the God the Israelites called Yahweh. And he, he sat on the throne, and, and what I remember about the throne is there was fire all around it. There was, it was like a river of fire was coming out of it. And there were thousands, I mean, there's probably hundreds of thousands of men and women around it, worshiping and singing and serving. And he took his throne, he took his position amidst the beasts, and he opened up books as if he was a judge, as if he was holding court. And I watched him 
grabbed the fourth beast, the biggest and the baddest, and he killed it. He killed it in front of all of us. That was like a sense of relief. And he killed it, and then the other three were allowed to live, but they were kind of put on this leash. There's a sense that they, they were no longer scary to us. There's a sense that their time was coming, even though they were still alive. Their power had been stripped from them. And this dark, cold night turned into to this rescue mission that we saw from the Ancient of Days. And then there's one last part to my dream as I was dreaming last night. The Ancient of Days was in heaven, and, and everyone was serving and singing to him. And, and, and a human got picked up by a cloud and approached the Ancient of Days. It was, it was one looked like a son of man, a strange human figure. And he, he approached the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days, having just slain the beast, handed over to him the kingdom, said, This is all yours, and all dominion, and all authority, and all power is now yours forever. And all nations, and all tribes, and all tongues will worship and serve you. Now, this was a story that Jewish people told in their... Again, it was running in the back of their imaginations over and over and over again. And they saw in the beast the kingdoms of the world, right? The, the people who oppressed other people. The powers of darkness. And they had this hope that one day their God would come and, and set up His kingdom. Would come down on a throne and say, enough is enough. And He would slaughter the beasts. And He would chain them. And they also had this hope that this human, this royal king figure would be given the power, would be given the kingdom. He would approach the Ancient of Days on clouds and be handed over authority. Now, I want us to have this in our mind as we approach our text in Acts for, for two reasons. One is Jesus, if you're not aware, if you're not familiar with the Gospels, Jesus' favorite title for himself is Son of Man, which comes from Daniel chapter 7. People call Jesus lots of things. They call him the Messiah. They call him Rabbi or Teacher. They call him Prophet. They call him Elijah. They call him John the Baptist. But his favorite title for himself, the one he uses most consistently, is the Son of Man. It seems this Daniel's story was how he made sense of his world. How he made sense of who he was and what was happening as he came along and said, the kingdom of God is here. And then also I want you to keep this scene in your mind as I think we watch it happen in Acts. Okay, so Acts 1, verse 6. So, when they had come together, again, he's been teaching with them, he's been talking to them about the kingdom, promising them the Spirit. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went... Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Catch what just happened here. I think Luke just described for you the historical fulfillment of that story. The Son of Man, the King, being taken and presented in a cloud before the Ancient of Days. He leaves the disciples and goes to heaven where God is. And there the New Testament says He sits at the Father's right hand with all authority and power 
and dominion. And the story fulfilled. The Son of Man takes his seat. This is what we call the ascension. So you have the crucifixion, you have the, the resurrection, you have the ascension. And in many ways, the ascension has been kind of forgotten by the church. There's actually a holy day for the ascension, um, about 40 days after Easter, usually celebrated on Easter, either a Thursday or on a Sunday. What most of us do, though, is we just kind of group the ascension and resurrection together, right? We don't usually cognitively think about this time period of in-between, where he's teaching and preaching, and then he ascends to the Father's right hand. We like to think of it as one kind of continuous movement, which it is in a sense. It's all part of the same work. But there's this time period, and then he ascends to the Father's right hand. We'll see in Psalm 2, this is a fulfillment of the prophecies that the king would take control of the world. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, which we'll see, I think, next week. That the royal king, the Messiah, the Son of Man, takes his seat at the Lord's right hand and is awarded the kingdom. So we would say this as we start out. The first thing we should notice about this passage is the ascension. What we see here is this kind of public enthronement of Jesus as the promised king. The king not only of Israel, but of the whole world. Usually kings will have this kind of enthronement ceremony, right? Where where everyone can see them being crowned and see them take the throne. And this is what the ascension is. This is why he didn't just disappear on his own. He did it in front of the disciples. So they knew exactly where he was. Exactly why he was there. Luke writes this in a sense to explain to Theophilus and to you and I why we don't talk to Jesus. I've never met Jesus in person. Never shook his hand. Never asked him questions. Theophilus might have wondered the same thing. I've just started believing these things. How about I go find Jesus? Well, Jesus is not around anymore. What do you mean he's not around? You said he was alive. You said he raised from the dead. Well, he ascended into heaven. That's where he is right now, the Father's right hand. In a sense, the Jewish background helps us understand this, the story of the Son of Man. But in another sense, the Roman background helps us understand this scene just as well. It was a common thing back in these first few centuries for Roman emperors after they died, right? The kings of kings, the Caesars, the Roman emperors, the biggest, baddest authority figures around, after they died to be um, talked about as ascending to heaven, Usually someone would be there as they died and then tell the story of watching their soul leave and going to heaven. And then when they were in heaven, they became gods. And then their children were now the son of God. Which, by the way, is a great title if you want to lead people. To be able to say, my, my dad's now God. He, he went to heaven. So here I have a, a picture for you. This is the Ark of Titus. Okay, Titus was a Roman emperor. This is in Rome. This was built probably around 80 BC or so. Um, by uh, Domitian. Titus had just died, so they built this kind of art for him. Uh, you'll notice there's an inscription on the top about Titus, about his victories, um, his reign as king. Uh, and then you'll see inside the art, like on the inside of it, there are all these different carvings and statues of his victories and of his riches and things like that. What I want you to do with me is walk underneath the, the, the ark and look straight up at the, at the very top, straight up above you, and this is what you see. And, and I'll try to make this out. I know, not the best picture. Again, this was built a long time ago, right? Um, this is an eagle, okay? So here's a wing. Here's a wing. Here's the head of the eagle. Here's his body, kind of his tail. And now on the back of the eagle is Titus. Titus is riding the eagle to heaven. This was a picture of what they called Titus's ascension. He went to heaven, and there he became God. 
one of the many Roman gods. And now his sons and descendants were properly the sons of God. You see this all throughout the New Testament, um, that the way the authors talk about Jesus is often in a way upstaging how the Romans talked about their emperors. Um, It's in Matthew, it's in Luke. Um, The idea behind it is that what you see in Caesar, what you see in Titus, what you see in Nero, those are just shadows, they're parodies. I mean, it's a joke of what it really means to be king of the entire world. And here you have the Jewish prophecies fulfilled and kings like Titus upstaged. Here, Luke says, is the true king of the entire created order taking his throne at the Father's right hand. So for the early Christians, for the early church, you see this look in verse number 8 here. Right before he's raised, he says, You will receive power when the Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. The ascension is the source of power to the early Christians. Tied in with the promise of Jesus going to heaven was the promise of the Spirit coming to us. You see this throughout the book of John, also in Luke's Gospel, and here. Jesus leaves, but he will send one to be with us. And so as Jesus departs, his spirit comes down and his church is filled with power and boldness and courage. And also the ascension is this real deep source of comfort, right? I mean, think about if you're an early disciple and you are spreading the good news here in the first um, two or three centuries and there's persecution and Paul is being put in jail and he's being beaten. It would maybe be comforting to know that who you were serving and following was actually the king of the world. That despite how things looked, he was in charge. His mission would be accomplished. The battle had been won on your behalf. I think for you and I, it it should hold the same amount of of comfort for us. No matter what kind of the global politic, uh, political scene looks like, no matter what kind of statistics um, we can see um, and rightly be concerned about, no matter what kind of relationships in our life break down, what kind of hurts we have, how how we've been abused, Um, by different people and different organizations and different situations. But the one we we sing about, the one we we just sang, He reigns. He reigns. That's not us convincing ourselves that He reigns when all the evidence tells us otherwise. That's what we would call truth. He reigns. He's king. He sits at the Father's right hand with all authority and power, as Matthew 28 says. The ascension is is Jesus' public act of enthronement as the king of the world. Look in verse number 10 here. He he goes away from them. um, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. His angels show up and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we're also given this promise that Jesus will come back, that he will return to earth. This is what we would think of as, as Jesus' second coming. That he has departed, but he will return. This is what we're still hoping for, his second coming. Okay, now put on your deep thinking caps, okay? <laughs> we're going to wade into some deeper water for just a few minutes. Hold your breath. We'll come back out. Follow me through here. Let me just say this as clear as I possibly can, and we'll try to work through it. Heaven Jesus goes to heaven, right? He leaves earth and goes to heaven. Heaven is not a location in our space-time reality. So, so you couldn't put heaven on a map somewhere. What do I mean by that is you, you couldn't get in a spaceship or you couldn't get in a car. You couldn't get in like this, this robot flying pack and eventually make your way to heaven, right? 
There's no map that you can draw. You can't chart Jesus' course here and then follow him to heaven. So, so most of us have this picture, and I think we just don't think through it um, that much, but we have this picture of Jesus here as the first kind of astronaut, right? Like this primitive cosmonaut, and so you can watch him. He's going up and up and up and up, and then eventually you can't see him anymore as he gets smaller and smaller. And then if we could see, like on a TV screen, right, he'd be like going through the stratosphere and kind of burning up a little bit, and then starting to freeze over a little bit as he's going through different layers. And then after a couple million light years of travel, like he finally floats into heaven, but that would be an, an incorrect view of heaven, right? It might be the, the best, maybe on our own, we could come up with, with the language that we have. But, but heaven's not this location in our kind of space-time existence. It's not somewhere you could eventually go. Which makes our thinking of the return of Jesus also needing to be thought through a little bit. Jesus' return, most likely, is not what we would picture if like an alien invaded our world. Where one day we wake up and, and we see a small dot in the sky. It's all over the news. No one knows what this dot is. What is this? But we know it's coming closer and closer and closer. It's starting to get bigger and starting to get bigger. For some reason we can see it, which by the way means half the world can't see it. And it's coming closer and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then slowly this perfect landing, because he's Jesus, he lands on our earth and says, I'm back. Kind of like a, a paratrooper, right? Entering into a football game. That's how we think of Jesus' return. But again, that only makes sense if, if heaven's somewhere up there. If heaven's some location that you could eventually get to, and he's just simply traveling back to our space. So then what is heaven? Where does he go? Well, I think that the best way we have of understanding it comes from C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia. I think most of us are familiar with it. There's the movies out. There's the books behind them. But in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's these two kind of spaces. There are these two alternate realities that coexist in the same physical space. You don't travel to Narnia and, and you keep going until you finally get there. You open up a door in the middle of your own space and you're there. In a whole new world. Full of new things, full of new dimensions, full of new space. And it interlocks in various points with earth itself. I think that's the best picture we have of heaven. What we know from the scriptures, heaven is God's space. It's simply where God is. It's his kind of sea over him. And earth is our space. And they interlock at certain arenas. Like the temple is where God dwelt with man. Heaven and earth interlocked. Jesus passes through the barrier into heaven. Okay, one last thing and then we'll come out of the water. Second, here's another thing I think maybe we haven't thought through. Some of us, maybe we have. Jesus does not leave his body behind when he goes into heaven. Which means today, Jesus is still a human being. Like right now. Today, Luke would say, Jesus is a physical, glorified, resurrected body. He's fully God and fully man. The God-man, as we saw when we talked about the Incarnation. He doesn't leave his body behind. And when he comes back, he'll come back with being fully God and fully man. The God-man, the, the word enfleshed, the word incarnate among us. Jesus is, um, this, I mean, this would be one of the reasons why it might be misleading at best to say that Jesus lives in your heart. This is what I was told growing up. This is what I was kind of this is how I kind of signed on to the faith, right? Jesus will come live in your heart. Even back as an eighth grader, I thought it was kind of silly. Um, 
because I was not the smartest kid in the world, right? Um, but I could realize that a full-grown man was not in my heart. Um, I mean, I understood the symbolism and, and metaphor behind it. But biblically, it's, it's much more accurate to say the Spirit is in your heart. The Spirit indwells you. Jesus is not here physically with us. He is physically somewhere. If you were to ask Luke, and if you were to ask readers who read Luke where he is, we would say he's in heaven. He's at God's right hand, ruling over what is now rightfully his, as the enthroned Lord of the world. Okay, let's back back out. Okay, so we have the ascension. Some, some interesting things to think about here. Again, the big point, it's his public enthronement. He's now um, installed as the Lord of the world. Um, now, if you look back in verse 6, we have an interesting question here. Um, when they come together, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, this is an interesting and confusing question. Um, it seems that the disciples are wanting or expecting a national and political restoration. Um, that Israel, um, the land and Israel, the government, Israel, the political structure would be established among the nations, kind of like in Solomon's day, as the ruling authority, as the, the, the empire of empires. Um, this is confusing and frustrating for a couple of reasons. It seems like Jesus has been fighting against this idea throughout the Gospels. It seems like he's been saying, hey, let go of your nationalistic pride. There are bigger things in mind for Israel. Um, you have to, Calvin said, John Calvin, a uh, famous reformer, uh, once said, there's many problems in this question as there are words. <laughs> that you probably could not have asked Jesus a more incorrect question at this time. Um, Jesus, you've got to imagine going, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? He kind of sidesteps their question and, and, and kind of trusts that they'll learn it along the way, which, which I think they do. Um, so Jesus here continues to, to redefine. He had the, the promise that he would return. He continues to redefine the disciples' kingdom expectations. And the first thing we see here is, is that it's not. He answers them by saying, it's not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. So he kind of sidesteps the question. It's now the time you're going to restore Israel. He says, well... You don't have the information for this. Instead, you have a job. And he says, let's focus on your job. We've got to get you ready for this job, and things will start to click as you go forth as my witnesses. The first thing I think we could say, though, is that his kingdom was not a national political kingdom. You see, the, the Jews at the time thought that one of the beasts that would be slain from the dream was Rome. Was the actual government oppressing them. That's why you had people like Judas Maccabeus... Simon Bar Kokhba, different Jewish freedom fighters who would fight and lead resurgences against Rome. Jesus, though, clearly throughout the gospel says, stop fighting them. This is not going to work well for you. The real battle, he says, is not against Rome. It's against, it's against that which drives Rome. It's against that which is actually in your hearts as well at times. Sin, death, evil, the Satan. He says, that's the real battle. And when I Win the kingdom. I'm not doing it by taking up sword against this army. I'm doing it on a cross. Paying for sins. Absorbing the wrath. That's the beast that was slain. And this kind of redefines the kingdom. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension reshapes what the kingdom is and should look like. Now, there are some who, in the Christian tradition, still expect Israel to be restored on a national political level. Um, still think that some of the promises made to them will be fulfilled in a very literal, physical uh, uh, restoration of Israel. Um, We would call this theology dispensationalism. Um, That's kind of the basic name for it. And to be honest, some of this backs political agenda. 
Um, this is why some people might pressure others, especially in our country, to support Israel the nation. Because as Christians, we should, knowing that one day they should rightfully have that land again. Now, you know me, I'm not political, and thank God, because I'm not good at it. So I'm not saying support Israel, don't support them, whatever it is like that. I'm saying let's think through if you want to put any theology behind that. I think most scholars, including myself, think dispensationalism is a bad reading of the text. I think the kingdom has been redefined. I think that the beast has been slain. It was not Rome and never will be. Ephesians says if you're fighting flesh and blood, you're fighting the wrong battle. The battle is against deeper and darker things. That's what Jesus is fighting against. That's what you and I are continuing to fight against. So I think Jesus redefines it by saying it's not a national political kingdom. Um, but you could go wrong in the opposite arena too. You could say, well, I guess it's just a spiritual kingdom. Jesus, again, okay, it makes sense now. Jesus isn't concerned with this world. He's not concerned with the orders of this world. He's going to go to heaven so that he can take us to heaven. If you've been with us, we've been fighting against this idea during our messy kingdom series for the last couple of months. The kingdom is about transformation, not evacuation. So Jesus' kingdom is very much a physical, real kingdom where real human beings like you and I love each other and forgive each other and serve each other and live together with each other. So you could go the, the other way in the wrong direction. I, I will say this. I think the kingdom is um, what we see in the, the grand um, picture of the New Testament. It's a renewed earth, all of earth recreated. Not just the land of Israel. I think this is where the New Testament kind of broadens the scope. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, the meek will inherit the earth. Israel will now inherit everything. Romans 8 says the earth is the promised land. Not just one piece of land, the whole earth, because he's the one true Lord of everything. And then there's this restored humanity. There's men and women, not only Jewish, also Gentiles, which Acts will be very much involved with telling us that story. How white people like me how Gentiles like you can be in this kingdom that's inclusive to all people. Okay, but in the meantime, between his ascension and resurrection, the church, he says, has a mission to fulfill. They have something to do, and that's what he tries to get them to focus on. He says, oh my gosh, you still have these kind of kingdom hang-ups, okay? Don't worry about it. It'll figure itself out, all right? Um, but, but right now, you need to get ready for something. Something big's about to happen. You have a job to do. You have a mission to accomplish. So he says this in verse um, number eight, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. This is a key word. We'll come back to it in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay. So there's kind of, he gives us kind of these co-centric circles where the mission of Jesus will spread out. Um, I got a map here for you. Here's Jerusalem. Uh, this is where the disciples are. This is where Jesus died. Um, they're going to start here. This is where the kind of movement's going to start. Then they're going to spread to Judea, which is a little bit south, and Samaria, which is north, where the Samaritans are. And that's where the mission will go next. Notice, really, what's just happening is the mission's going out in all areas, right? Starts in Jerusalem, then everywhere around it. The circle's growing bigger and bigger. And then finally, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. If you're tracking along with us, this is actually a bit of an outline of the book of Acts. So chapters 1 through 7 of Acts will be about the mission in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 10 will be about the mission in Samaria and Judea. We'll have a quick break in chapters 11 and 12. We'll come back to Jerusalem. And then 13 and on, to the very end of the book. In 13, Antioch sends Paul out on a missionary journey. Is concerned with the mission to the rest of the world. We have here kind of an outline. But they're called to be witnesses to the world. 
I think this is an important word here. They're called to be witnesses to the world. That in some way they are testifying to the people that they come in contact with of the truth of the gospel, the truth of the kingdom, of the truth of God's forgiveness and grace and power for them. I think this is something that we need to um, start to re-understand if we're going to be faithful as a church and as individuals who follow Jesus. In both their word and deed, I think, um, the, the image here, the, the, imagine, the, the thought behind this is that they, by their existence, would be testifying to the truth. So sure, the things they said, right? The, the things they said about Jesus, the things they said about the gospel, the things that Acts, uh, Luke writes down here in Acts, it's a testimony, it's a witness to the truth. But also even the, the very way they live, the way that they share with one another and take care of one another. John says in, in 13, Jesus says in the gospel, John, they'll know my disciples because they love each other. Because the way that they exist together will be a sign, will be a pointer, will be a witness to some greater, deeper truth. And the way they talk to each other in the world around them. And the way they forgive each other in the world around them. I think if you want to understand ethics, or why we do certain things and why we don't do other things, or at least should, the key idea behind that is witness. We're witnessing by our very deeds, by our very lives, by the very breaths that we take to the gospel. When we're in our workplaces, when we're in our families, when we're in our, our schools, we're witnessing. So the church is to go out and to be a witness. Um, as we keep reading, we see kind of, as we finish up chapter 1, what we might call the public and faithful stance of the church. How is it they look as they get ready for the spirit to descend, which we'll see in chapter 2, and get ready for the mission to start. If you read with me, we'll pick up in verse 12 again. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord, with one mind, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So they go back and and you see that they're, they're worshiping and they're praying together. Okay, They have one accord, verse 14 says. They have one mind. They're united and then they're, they're praying. This is what worship is at its heart. Being together with others and addressing God. Thanks. Request. They're together and they're praying. They're waiting for the Spirit to come. If we keep reading in verse 15, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. Peter, you'll remember from the Gospels, is the boisterous one. Um, and that will be for his advantage here. He'll become the leader of the early church. You see him right here. Take kind of the stage, right? He says, all right, let me, let me get things going. He gets up, gives a speech. Uh, they say the company of persons was in about, uh, all, uh, about 120. So you have a nice little group here starting. And said, verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Okay, so the one who betrayed Jesus. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, the field of blood. Um, here you have kind of a different story of Jesus' death from how Matthew would tell the story at the end of his gospel. Uh, Matthew says Judas hanged himself. You could probably harmonize them together. G- Judas hanged himself, and then as the body decomposed it fell, right? I'm not going to spell it out for you. Um, 
Verse 20, we'll keep reading. It's written in the book of Psalms, so he goes to the scriptures and may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So they're looking for someone to replace Judas. And the qualification is this, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John to the very beginning of his ministry. They wanted that person to be there and to have seen it. Until the day when he was taken up from us, all the way to the ascension, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So these are the qualifications. They want someone who's been there for all of it. Notice that the twelve disciples with one missing feel the sense to fill the slot, to have twelve again, to to fill it up, fill what was missing. Um, in the Gospels, the twelve are said to be looking forward to sitting on thrones. They're, in a sense, these privileged leaders of the new Israel, this new movement of the people of God. What's interesting, this is free, what's interesting is none of the other apostles are ever replaced after they die. James will die, we'll see it in Acts, he's not replaced. Why? Well, because the early Christians believed in something called resurrection. They believed the apostles would be back with us. They would be raised from the dead. See, other religions, I'm thinking of one public religion, um, have apostles and leaders, and when they die, they replace them. You need new people to lead the mission. The other Christians didn't need to see a need to replace James, because he was going to be back with us. He'd be raised from the dead. And that might be kind of awkward. <laughs> that's my seat. No, that's, that's my seat. <laughs> Tell my, uh, who's sitting there. No, there just needed to be 12. They're getting ready for the mission ahead of them. So they have two in mind. They kind of think and and narrow the the candidates down. They put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, or son of the Sabbath, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Um, They prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. They cast lots for them. Um... This is probably they put their names on stones, two stones in a bag, and shook it until one fell out. And the one that fell out was thought to be God's choice. This might seem superstitious and gambling to you and I. Um, it's actually got precedent in the book of Proverbs, uh, and this was a common way of determining God's will. Um, it's not told in a negative light here. So they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so the, the disciples, in a sense, get all their ducks in a row. They worship, and they pray, and they get that twelfth seat filled. And they're ready for Acts 2 to hit, the spirit to fall, and the whole world to be flipped upside down as Jesus' mission goes forth to the end of the world. Okay, we'll wrap it up this week with just a couple thoughts real quick. I think that today's church continues to need um, to understand some of the truths taught to us here. I think it will help us both as a community, FC Cube, and as individuals following Jesus. First, I think we need to constantly have a correct view of the exalted Jesus. We need to be able to, to say and to articulate and to experience where he is, what he's doing there, why he's there. We need to have that same power that he gave the early disciples. We need to have that same sense of comfort. That no matter what life throws our way, we know that he reigns. And all God's children saying he reigns, he reigns, hallelujah, he reigns. And there's no power of darkness in the world that could cause us to tremble. Because he reigns. 
And then second, I think we, we need a deep sense of calling. We need to, to experience on a deep level and the very inner being of our existence, this calling, this, this gift of a vocation, that you've been given something to do, given this task to do, this calling of being a witness. And that the way that FC Cube is and exists would be a witness to the world. And the way that you are and exist would be a witness to the people around you. The way that you talk, the way that you love, the way that you forgive, the way that you apologize, the way that you mourn, the way that you grieve, the way that you laugh, and the way that you play would be a message in and of itself of one who has died and raised on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, I I thank you for our time this morning. Uh, I I pray that you would continue to um, work your your power and your comfort in us. I pray that uh, you would give us an increasing portion of the Spirit, Father, uh, for us to obey you and follow you. Um, We pray that our eyes and our hearts would be opened up to the truths presented to us in your scriptures, Father, that we would go about our days with a sense of urgency and a sense of restfulness and a sense of victory because of what you've done and where you are and what you are doing, Father. I pray that we would um, embrace our vocation as your people, as your witnesses, that we would continue to go out and go forth until you return the way that you left. We love you, Father. And it's in your Son's name that we pray all of these things.